And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. From Turning Point magazine comes this. Men have pursued joy in every avenue imaginable. Some have successfully found it, while others have not. Perhaps it would be easier to describe where joy cannot be found. Not in unbelief. Voltaire was an infidel of the most pronounced type, and he wrote, I wish I had never been born. Not in pleasure. Lord Byron lived a life of pleasure, if anyone did. He wrote, the worm, the canker, and grief are mine alone. I'd like to hang out with that guy. Not in money, Jay Gould, the American millionaire, had plenty of that. When dying, he said, I suppose I am the most miserable man on earth. Not in position or fame, Lord Beaconsfield, he was a British prime minister in the 19th century who enjoyed both of those things, both, uh, both uh, fame and position, uh, he said, youth is a mistake, manhood is a struggle, old age a regret. People at the pinnacle of their lives, the things that they strive for and achieved. It wasn't in military glory. Alexander the Great conquered the known world in his day, and having done so, he wept in his tent, and he said, there are no more worlds to conquer. That was his thing, to conquer worlds. No joy in those things. I think we've found that when we've achieved something great, that joy is temporary. It doesn't last very long. So then where is real joy found? Well, what we have here today is the story of some shepherds. And verse 20, I think, sums it up for us. It says, and the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. They had joy in spite of their miserable existence. 
And I think the story for us here is that we can too. We can too, in spite of hard things that might come about or happen to us. So I want to look at three things about the shepherds. Number one, what they were. Number two, what they saw. And number three, what they did. So what they were, what they saw, and then what they did. So here's number one, what they were. Who were the shepherds? Most of what we know about shepherds comes from history books. We don't have a lot here in scripture about the shepherds. And by the way, there's all kinds of myths out there. You, you read on the internet all kinds of cool little stories about how the shepherds swaddled and, and did all kinds of stuff like that. There's, n- there's not a shred of evidence that anything like that happened, by the way. Just laying that on you. In case you read that, it's all over Facebook and, and uh, things like that. So, but what do we know about the shepherds? Well, they were a despised lot, actually. They were a low class they were low, low people and they were despised. Well, why? Well, they were, first, they were non-religious in a, in, a, in, a, in a country that was very religious. The Jews were very religious. They didn't have time to go to the temple and perform the religious rites that it would have been required by Judaism. And their very work made them ceremonially unclean. And it was too much of a bother to become clean. So they basically were non-religious they were thieves. They were notorious thieves. They would steal you blind if you could, if they could. They had no influence in society. They were the lowliest of the low. Their word was not even accepted in a court of law. That's what people felt about shepherds. They were poor and they worked 24 hours a day. They worked the night shift in addition to the day shift. And now most of the men in families wouldn't wouldn't take care of the shepherds. That job was given to young people and children, uh, both boys and girls. So more than likely, the angels appeared to a crowd that was uh, even less stature in the community because kids were not held in high regard either. They were good for what they could do for you if they could work for you. So, So does this tell us anything about the gospel of Jesus Christ? Verse 10 says, and the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. So this is not news just for elites, but it's for the poor too. It's for the uneducated and the educated. It's for the the downtrodden and those not so downtrodden. It's for All people, right? That's what the verse says. It's for all people. But it is incredibly interesting to me that the angels appeared to this group. The most despised group in the most despised country on the face of the earth at that time. This is nowhereville. I don't think we get that. This is Nowhereville. The first massive announcement of the birth of the Messiah comes to these lowly, non-religious, unclean, thieving shepherds. Couldn't God have done a better presentation with that? At the very least, it could have been Herod's palace, right? There had been a little bit more effect a little bit more influence might have gotten more people in. You know, I, I, did he mess up on this one? 
So as I told you last week, this is the nature of the kingdom. This is the nature of the kingdom. In his book, Lead Like It Matters, um, Craig Rochelle says, Jesus came for outsiders. He came for those who were lost, broken, hurting, disenfranchised, alone, overlooked, poor. Jesus came for those whom religion had rejected. So we tend to not think this way, of course. Our, our human and even American tendency is to be with those that are like us, to think that think like us, that look like us, that have similar socioeconomic statuses, those that are successful and educated, those that look good and are going places. We tend to not want to be with the broken or the certainly not with the irreligious. We tend to circle the wagons in the church and be with people that make us the most comfortable. Well, Groeschel continues and he says this, many churches unknowingly focus inward. Forgetting the people who need Jesus the most. These churches are like a hospital that no longer accepts patients. Or a soup kitchen that no longer feeds hungry people. And I wonder about us. May it not be that we become a hospital that no longer accepts patients. Or that we become a soup kitchen that no longer feeds the hungry or gives drink to the thirsty. This is our mission. It is the mission of the church. Well, that's who the shepherds were. What is it that they saw? Well, they saw an angel. It's verse nine, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with fear. So an angel appeared, but it wasn't just that there was also glory all around. Whose glory was it? It was the glory of the Lord. <laughs> it wasn't the angel's glory. It was God's glory. So what are we to make of that? Well, in the Bible, there are two aspects to God's glory. There, it, it, it's an attribute and it also refers to his presence. It refers to who he is, and it refers to his presence. In terms of being an attribute, we might say that it refers to his splendor and his beauty. You also might say that it refers to his character. His name is glorious. He's the king of glory. He is highly exalted above the heavens, and his glory is over all the earth. The Old Testament sense is this weightiness this greatness, this power, this is who God is. This is the glory of the Lord that was there. But see, it also refers to his presence. So in the Bible, there's all these images of fire and light that are associated with God's glory. Probably the foremost example is what rabbinical scholars called the Shekinah glory, which was the glory of God with the children of Israel. And you remember when they were wandering in the wilderness, there was this pillar of, of smoke or whatever it was leading them by day. And then this thing of fire, this pillar of fire, cloud of, a cloud in the day, pillar of fire at night. I'll get it right. 
And these represented God. And then when they would camp, they would set up the tabernacle. And then God's glory, his, the cloud would descend on the tabernacle. It wasn't, that whole point was not that somehow the tabernacle could contain his glory. Because it certainly could not. That was a direct sign that his presence would be with his people. That's what he did with that. That's how they could see that his presence was with them. But it was glorious. It was glorious. You remember when Moses wanted to see God's glory. And God hit him in the cleft of the rock. And he said, you can't see my glory full on. You will die. And so he hit him and he showed him a very little part of the backside of his glory. And when Moses came down, his face was radiant. It was radiant. They couldn't even look at his face. It shone like the sun. Do you wonder why the shepherds were terrified? I don't think it, it takes much to figure that out. So they would have been terrified enough with some angels in the sky. But here they are confronted with the inconceivable and overwhelming presence of God himself. The glory of the Lord shone all around. And for shepherds who were thieves and liars and connivers, I'm sure their thoughts were, we are doomed. Woe is me. We are done. It's what Isaiah said when he saw God high and exalted and the, the seraphim went around him and they said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah fell down and said, I'm doomed. I'm done. My question for us is, have we seen God's glory? It doesn't matter who we might be. You could be the most successful person financially or career-wise. You could be extremely educated and have much knowledge. You might be very good-looking and have great deal of approval and, and the envy of others. Or you might be on the opposite of the social spectrum. You might be despised. You might feel like you don't fit in. You might have be full of insecurities. But here's the thing. When God's glory comes, it shows all the crap in everybody and everyone sees themselves for who they are. You can't help it in the presence of God. And we are good at covering the cracks. We don't talk about our flaws. When someone points them out, we get defensive. We get people to ally with us. You know, I'm, what I'm talking about is true. When you get in the presence of God, there is a sense of terror. Why? Because you don't know what he's going to do. He doesn't take anybody's dictates. And he's powerful and his glory is overwhelming and it exposes, it exposes. If your sin and brokenness has not been exposed, then maybe you haven't been in the presence of God and seen his glory. This is why we don't like pursuing the glory 
of God. It's too painful because it exposes too much. It speaks truth that we don't want to hear. If you've ever prayed, God, I want to be closer to you. I want to know you more. Get ready. He's going to expose you and it's not going to be pretty and you're not going to like it. It's going to be painful. But this is why the good news of Jesus is so good. See, we don't really think of it as that good a news because we're too busy running, hiding, showing people that every, we got it all together. Everything's good with us. We're okay. It's often not good news for us like it was for the shepherds. The shepherds had already been rejected by their culture. They had really nothing to speak of socially. Seeing God's glory terrified them, but something incredible happened. They didn't get destroyed. That's the point. They didn't get destroyed. The opposite was true. They were given good news, better than they could have hoped for, and it brought them joy. Look at verse 10. And the angel said to them, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. See, the good news really is good news. The broken are mended. The naked are clothed. The corrupt are given a, a new heart. The condemned are given a permanent reprieve. The blind are given sight. There's a proclamation of the year of the Lord's favor. The one who would do this was born. <laughs> the announcement was there. But he wasn't just anyone. Who was he? Well, he was given the divine title here. Not only Christ, which was the Greek for Messiah, which is what they were looking for in the Old Testament. They, they had been looking for this one that was to come to free them. Of course, they thought it was politically. Never in a million years did they consider that he would be born in a place like Bethlehem. Never in a million years. So he was called Messiah, but it's more than Messiah. He says it's Christ the Lord. There's no questioning who he was. He was the sovereign Lord, Yahweh, the great I am, the God of Mount Sinai that came with dreadful thunder and, violent, and a violent earthquake. The one who was there and said, don't touch the mountain or you will be destroyed. This is the great God, Yahweh, who came as a baby he came for sinners, for the broken, the naked, the destitute, the needy, the corrupt. Are you all of those things? If you're not, then you don't need him. You don't need him. And then suddenly the sky is full of angels. We don't know if they were singing. I, pretend to, I, I prefer to think that they were. Um, the text doesn't say so, but I'm sure it was something really good, and, uh, and I have to believe it was absolutely glorious, that it was, it was beyond anything we could imagine. Um, 
And here's the thing, the one who was worshiped in heaven. We'll talk about the angels next week, but I just think they must be thinking, what kind of inconceivability is this? <laughs> they know who Jesus is. He's in heaven. They're worshiping around the throne. There he is. And, and they're, you know, he ascended to heaven and they're worshiping and there's choirs up there and he's the center of all things. And suddenly he goes to be a baby. What in the world is that about? The one who is worshiped in heaven by the angels that humbled himself to be born in a manger, a lowly stable. And the angels couldn't contain themselves. They praised God. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. Do you break out in spontaneous joy? This is what it is to believe the gospel. It is to believe I've got nothing. I really have nothing. I need to be made new. And I'm accepted and loved. I am sung over. I am delighted in. Because of Jesus. The savior. Of sinners. That's joy. Number three. What they did. They went off to find the baby. So I don't know if they left their flocks unattended. It doesn't really say. Um. But they had no other option. I mean, for them, there was no other option. It was a must-do. How, how could they not? They were overwhelmed with great joy. They had to behold the Christ. It was the driving force of their lives. Lowly, unreligious, thieving shepherds had suddenly been completely surprised by joy. They had seen the glory of God and not been destroyed. Isn't that something? If you had seen the glory of God and you saw yourself in that light and then you weren't destroyed, you'd be wondering what happened. They couldn't help but be driven by it. And it says that they went to where Mary, Joseph, and Jesus were and beheld him. And what was the result? Well, they couldn't contain themselves on verse 17. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. They might have gone door to door. They were telling everybody. These were lowly shepherds. But they were telling everybody, this is what happened to us. They went and told everyone there was good news to behold Bethlehem wasn't a place used to good news, I don't think. Life was hard. It was drudgery. The haves and the have-nots. Remember Herod's temple, Herodium, was right there in full view, everyone. And he lived in lavish luxury and everyone else lived in poverty. Life was hard. It was drudgery. Making a living was difficult. And here come these shepherds to tell them about a Messiah, the one who would be Savior. I guarantee there was no joy in Herod's house. Later, he would try to kill the baby. He was paranoid. He didn't have any joy. But those who were broken and needy were filled with wonder. Verse 18, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. See, the result of beholding the Christ it's, a, it, it's very mysterious. Mary didn't even understand it. She treasured the things in her heart. She pondered them. 
They, they didn't understand these things. All they knew is they were full of joy because they had an, had, had an encounter with the living God and they knew maybe they didn't know everything, but they knew that somehow this child would save them. See, it's a deep sense of need accompanied by wonder and joy if we see God's glory and we see his mercy in Christ. There is joy, there is also wonder. How is this all possible? It's the mysteries of God. Of course, we know the end of the story. The king came in humility, and I find it unbelievably, unbelievably ironic that the angels appeared to the shepherds of the sheep to announce that the Lamb of God would make, would take away the sins of the world and he would be born in a manger. I think there's a lot of irony there. But the king of kings would become lower than those bleeding sheep. He would become a worm, a refuse, in order to pay for the sins of his people. He was born to die on a cruel cross. And that glory of the Lord, when it exposes the cracks, instead of lashing out with thunder and lightning and destroying, he turns it and he lashes it out on his son on the cross. This is what he did. He took the punishment for us. God is a consuming fire and he can throw people into hell. But he's also the loving God that has provided a way for men to be with him and experience radical, all-consuming, outrageous joy. How's your joy quotient? Huh. Mine's not that great a lot of times. That's the truth. Lee Horton and his brother Dennis were wrongly convicted of robbery and murder and they served 25 years in prison. Last year, they were granted clemency, and they were released. Here's Lee's story. I'm going to tell you honestly, the first thing that I was aware of when I walked out of the doors and sat in the car and realized that I wasn't handcuffed, um, the first thing I was aware of, yes, I'm, I'm not reading that well. The first thing I was aware of when I walked out of the doors and sat in the car and realized that I wasn't handcuffed. And for all that time I've been in prison, every time I was transported anywhere, I always had handcuffs on. And that moment right there was the most emotional moment that I had. Even when they told me that the governor had signed the papers, it didn't set in until I was in that car and I didn't have those handcuffs on. And I don't think people understand that the punishment is being in prison. When you take every, away everything, everything becomes beautiful to you. When we got out, we went to the DMV to get our licenses back. My brother and I stood in line for two and a half hours, and we heard all the bad things about the DMV. We had the most beautiful time. And all the people were looking at us because we were smiling and we were laughing and they couldn't understand why we were so happy. And it just was that, just being in that line was a beautiful thing. I was in awe of everything around me. It's like my mind was just heightened to every small nuance just to be able to look 
out of the window just to walk down a street, just to inhale the fresh air, just to see people interacting. It woke something up in me, something that I don't know if it died or if it went to sleep. I've been having epiphanies every single day since I've been released. One of the morning, my morning rituals every morning is I send a message of good morning, good morning, good morning, have a nice day to every one of my 42 contacts. And they're like, how long can he keep doing this? But they don't understand that I was deprived and now it's like I've been released and I've been reborn into a better day, into a new day, like the person I was no longer exists. I've stepped through the looking glass onto the other side and everything is beautiful. Brothers and sisters, this is a picture of the gospel. But instead of serving the sentence ourselves, Jesus served it for us. And let us get off scot-free. And the result has to be joy unspeakable. If we understand this, then nothing can stop us from sharing this. Would you have joy in the DMV for two and a half hours? I think this is what happened to the shepherds. And I think it's something we need to recover. Joy is the essence. One of the essences of the Christian life. One of the fruit of the Spirit. That's the gospel. And it changes everything. Let's pray.